Romans chapter 2. And we will be focused on verses 7 through 11 today. But I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 of Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who are by patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. So this text is... Um, once again, I said it's going to take a while before we get off some of these heavy topics uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, but uh, as we look today, I, I said verse 7 through 11. I actually meant verse 6 through 11. We're using verse 6 as kind of an overlap between last week's message and, and or last time's message and, and this message. So it's actually Romans 2, uh, verses 6 through 11. And the title of the message is Final Judgment. Final Judgment. Now, this passage is kind of hard to read a little bit. There's parts of it that uh, in the King James Version is, is kind of difficult to understand, so we're going to try to kind of unpack that as we go along. But the, the overall topic of this is final judgment. There's going to be a judgment one day. So our first point is just the reality of final judgment. The reality of final judgment. So as we look, there's a lot of things I think that this passage teaches, and we're going to kind of unpack some of those things. But we don't want to miss the just very simple, easy understanding that we need to have that there is a coming judgment. Um, there is a reality of the final judgment. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a parable used or a story used to scare men and women into repentance, um, even though that happens a lot. Uh, when your life is over on this earth and or Christ has returned and this present age comes to an end, God will either give you eternal life or you will be facing the wrath and judgment of God. And both of those things will last for eternity. So you will either receive glory and honor and peace, the way this text says it, or you will receive tribulation and distress. Heaven or hell awaits you at this judgment, and both will last forever. 
So as we look at the text, again, I'm going to read the ESV version for you, and I think it kind of helps us unpack it a little bit better sometimes than the King James um, in this particular instance. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Just reads a little smoother, but that's, it's uh, basically the, the same and the same idea there, but uh, reads a little bit smoother. So you get a sense that what Paul is actually telling us about now is final judgment. This is extremely, extremely important for us to understand, and it should impact what we think about the right now. When we think about the judgment, it's not just about looking to the future and saying, oh, there's going to be a judgment one day. If there's going to be a judgment, and that's what Paul says is true, then that should impact how we live right now. We should know that there, there's a reckoning that is coming. God is not going to be mocked. God, there's nothing secret from God. He knows, he knows all. One day, all the things that you've been able to successfully keep secret from everybody in the world, and sometimes even from yourself, that you've been able to deceive yourself on, all of those things are going to be laid bare. Now, I don't want to give relief too soon on this because we need to think of it in that way. And I think so many times because we understand the gospel, we just really quickly put that in the, on the back burner and say, oh, but it's okay because of the gospel. And that's true. But we really do need to think sometimes about that there is a judgment that's coming. If, if you were here on Wednesday night, you heard Brother Jeff talk about this a little bit, about the, the final judgment, that the books are going to be open. Um, that we're going to be judged according to the deeds in this life. That's exactly what this text says in verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. According to his deeds. That's how we are going to be judged. Uh, in, in the ESV version, that says he will render each one according to his works. So according to our deeds or according to our works. So how do we process this? Well, number one, I, I love the way um, I was reading uh, after uh, one of the people that had preached on this text, and, and he broke it down into the different stages of life, and I think that's really important. So for children, if you're a younger person today, and, and you're looking at the judgment of God, that's a really scary thing, isn't it? That's <laughs> something that's kind of scary to think about. And... Uh, I'm not going to name who it was, but I know a young person who used to stay awake at night and couldn't go to sleep because they were worried about final judgment. They were worried about eternity and things like that. Well, listen, that's a scary prospect, isn't it? And it should be. But you don't have to fear because we, we know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for sinners so that everyone who trusts him uh, will not face the wrath of God, but instead they will have eternal life. So... It's not wrong to think about it even as a child. It's, it's not uh, wrong to understand that there will be a final judgment, but don't be overtaken in fear. For those who are a little bit older, who are maybe teenager, young adult age, um, I think this is probably the, the place where as an understanding person, 
you probably don't think about it as much, okay? <laughs> That's probably out of all people who are old enough to really kind of have uh, thoughts on this um, more than just children, you probably think about it the least. Um, and the reason for that is because we don't think about judgment unless we think about death, right? When we, when we start thinking about death, we say, oh, that's right. When I die, there's going to be a judgment at, at some point. And so we begin to think about it. And so as teenagers and young adults, we kind of put that on the back burner. We don't think about it. Well, I'll deal with that when I get older. Well, number one, you don't know that. <laughs> you don't know that you're going to deal with that when you're older. You're not promised tomorrow. So that's one thing. But um, we didn't get to finish the book, and, and I hate that, but we all, some of the young people here and myself, we went through the, the book by John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life, and uh, he says a lot in that about how that we should be having an eternal mindset, we should think, uh, we should be uh, focused on things that are more eternal. Well, that's really not the MO for most teenagers and young adults in America today, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not down on them, uh, but I, I don't think probably that thinking about things that are eternal would be on the very top of their list. We live in a, a very instant generation uh, and culture, so uh, the, the lesson there would be to make sure that you do think about things that are eternal. Don't get caught up in all the things that are going on in the busyness of life and forget that there are eternal things that you need to think about as well, including a final judgment. Those of us who are raising children... Um, and have raised children and are kind of in the middle of our life. Uh, the same thing. We get caught up in all the things that we're doing, our careers, all of those kinds of things. And we forget that one day there's going to be a judgment. And, and we need to live every day uh, as though we understand that reality. And then older saints, uh, as you approach this, um, I think that's where it probably becomes more and more and more of a reality. Uh, more and more thoughts about, um, so what is going to happen after this life? is over and and we don't need to hide from the reality that there is going to be a judgment um, may god give uh, those who are elderly the grace to think of it and know it and and be ready for uh, the righteous judgment of god as it said in our text and to uh, as they approach the end of this life uh, to be ready to meet uh, the righteous judge so i think it's it's good for uh, ministers for Christians in general to be real about this to mention this to be faithful to let you know that there is a judgment uh, there's this quote by in that book that I told you about that we went through with the young people and um, this was on a sign in John Piper's house when he was growing up and he said it had an impact on his whole life because he just remembers this sign they had it hanging on their front porch and it said this only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. That's, that's pretty heavy. You know, if you really think about it and you were really to put that into practice, you only get one life and that will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It puts a lot of things in perspective. So when we talk about the reality of a final judgment, when it says in our text, he will render to every man according to his deeds, that means that we must live with an eternal mindset, not one focused on temporal pleasures uh, when you have come to know God and you love Jesus Christ and you can say you believe in Christ and you can say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain then living in the light of eternity in eternity will replace your desire for the the pleasures of this world that will affect uh, in, in even the little details of how you live and that's going to be a big part of this passage so 
I'm just kind of setting the stage for that. Now, one thing I need to say right off the bat about this, too, when we talk about the reality of a final judgment, there are some, especially among our order, the primitive Baptists, who would look at this text and say this is talking about a temporal judgment. It's not talking about a final judgment. Well, I'm going to tell you that's false. That's, a, that's, that's wrong. It's not true at all. This is talking about a final judgment. There will be a judgment at the end of all things when we will be judged according to our deeds. So if you hear that, don't, don't believe that. That's a, that's a false way of looking at the text. And, and they're doing that so that they can kind of believe other things uh, and, and make these other things true. But this is not a temporal judgment. This is a final judgment that's under consideration here in Romans chapter 2. Now, secondly... One of the big points of this passage, and, and so we're going to do a little bit of a review so that this will make sense, but point number two is really all the way down in verse 11, but it's all the way through the passage as well. Verse 11 says, for there is no respect of persons with God. Uh, in, in our other version, in the ESV, it says, for God shows no partiality. There's no respect of persons with him. He does not show partiality. So point number two is, no respect of persons. Uh, God is not a respecter of persons. So one of the main points of this passage then is that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles will uh, get eternal life or wrath and indignation, not in according to whether they're a Jew or a Gentile or any other distinctive that, that we might come up with, but instead according to their works. Uh, now, in Romans, go back to chapter 1. I told you we'd do a little review <coughs> so you can kind of see why Paul is bringing this up. In Romans 1, uh, 18 through 32, you remember back in that text, Paul showed that Gentiles are under the power of sin and are, but are without excuse before the judgment of God. You know, even if they were to say, well, you know, I didn't know this or I didn't know that or this didn't happen, he says, you're still without excuse. You're just without excuse. So you can't use that as an excuse when the judgment of God comes. Therefore, they need the gospel that he had spoken of in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And then Paul is laboring to show that those Jews and Gentiles are all under the power of sin, that they will be without excuse at the judgment day if they don't receive God's gift, God's righteousness, uh, by faith in Christ. Romans 3, 9, kind of a key summary verse on that that we went to when we were in that passage. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So the aim, according to Romans 3, 19, is that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So he's basically telling the Jews... In the first part of chapter 2, listen, if you were gloating as I was talking to the Gentiles at the end of chapter 1, uh, look at how he starts. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, who, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. In other words, you're going to be judged with the same judgment. Don't be counting on your Jewishness. Don't be counting on the fact that you're a Jew to save you when the judgment of God and the wrath of God comes. He says, we've described all of that at the end of chapter 1. Well, guess what? You, it applies to you as well. Just because you're a Jew, don't think that this changes things for you. So Paul shows that those who have access to special revelation and 
can pass judgment on the immoral um, non-Jewish people are in the same trouble because they judge others and do the same kinds of things themselves. Their deeds are not different. Their works are not different. So you don't have an excuse to pass judgment because you're going to be judged by that same judgment. So he repeats the indictment again in verse 3. You pass judgment on those who practice such things, but what's the key there? And you do the same yourself. Uh, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentance, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation and the righteous judgment of God. So that's the main point of verses 1 through 5. And then in verse 6, Paul gives the general statement in defense of that indictment. He says, God's going to render to each person according to his deeds or according to his works. Judgment will not accord with uh, your birthright. It will not accord with uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or your intellect or your family or your race or nationality or any other thing. There is no partiality with God in verse 11. So that's one of the main points of this. So if you're trusting in anything, you know, that you're born an American, if you're trusting that you're born into a, a family that's been in the church for centuries, if you're trusting in the fact that you're a primitive Baptist, it's not going to save you in the day of judgment. It's not going to save you in the day of judgment. That's not how you're going to be judged. Is by what family you were born into, what nation you were born into, what the color of your skin is. There is no partiality with God. So he says... Very plainly, that, that's one of the, and, and as I said, it's not just in verse 11. If you look kind of internally in the passage, you will see, especially there in verse 9 and verse 10, Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, to the Jew first, and also the Gentile. Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good. Then what does he say again? To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. So it's built into the passage. He says this judgment that's coming, and there's either going to be peace, there's going to be uh, joy and all of those things, and that's going to be Jew and Gentile, and then there's going to be judgment, and that's going to be Jew and Gentile, for there's no respect of persons with God. Now, that brings us to our third point. We're moving real quickly. It brings us to our third point. There's only two outcomes. There's only two outcomes. You know, you might go to court and let's say, you know, you've got a traffic violation or something and, and you go into court and there may be four or five different outcomes that could happen. They may throw you in jail. They may decide to just fine you. They may say, no, you're free to go. They may put you on probation. You know, they may say, oh, you're under house arrest. We're not going to put you in jail. There's a whole lot of different outcomes. Well, in this judgment, there's only two outcomes. That's it. There's two outcomes. It's real simple. It's not real hard to understand there is a path of eternal life and there is a path of the wrath of god and and those are stark starkly in contrast there is an eternal life of peace and joy and love and and happiness that you can't imagine that's not even worthy to be compared to anything in this life or there is a place where the worm does not die where there is fire and brimstone and suffering that never ends, that never stops. So there are only two outcomes. So let's look at that in verses 7 through 10. To them who, are, who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
So the, the judgment for them, where, what's gonna be, uh, where they're going to be placed in judgment is eternal life. That sounds good, right? Now, I need to clarify that a little bit. This always confused me when I heard people preaching when I was a younger person because they would say, well, if, you, you know, if you're one of God's children and you get to the judgment, you're going to get eternal life. I thought, okay, well, that means I'm going to live forever. Well, in one sense, everybody is going to live forever, right? We believe in that, that all, the, all the dead are going to be risen and they're going to be parted and they're going to go to eternity in one place or the other, right? So when we say eternal life, it's not really just meaning that you have life. It's the kind of life that you have, eternal life that is worth living, that is uh, enjoyable with the Lord. So, but we do believe, and I just want to make it clear, we don't believe that um, only God's children are going to be raised to eternal life and other people are going to be annihilated. That's not what we believe. So when it says eternal life here, this is the, the positive side of the judgment. Then in verse 8, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's the result for that group? So eternal life was for the positive side. Now this side is indignation and wrath. That doesn't sound good, does it? You know, if you go in and, and you've done something wrong and, and you go in before your parents when you're a little, little kid and you're sitting at the judgment seat, right? <laughs> There's usually one of two outcomes, either... It's proven that you didn't do anything wrong, and there's, there's goodness, or there's wrath and indignation, right? That's not a, not a good place. That's not where you want to be. It's really that simple. That, that's what this means, wrath and indignation, the wrath of God. John, uh, John chapter uh, 3 says that for those who don't know Christ, for if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on you. That's a, that's a terrible place to be. And, and we could go to many places all over the scripture and show you what that means and what that's going to look like. But I can promise you, you don't want to experience the wrath of an omnipotent, holy God. So very serious when it says indignation and wrath. And now it's going to, take, it's going to make the same exact two statements, except in the, in the different order. So verse 9 really goes with verse 8. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So as you work through that passage, you can clearly see that there's just the two outcomes. So the positive pair to eternal life and to peace, and all of those things that are mentioned there in verse 10, to glory, honor, and peace. And the negative pair of verses in the middle, verses 8 and 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the path that leads to wrath is selfish ambition and disobedience to the truth and obedience to unrighteousness and doing evil. And I like the way that that's worded. I don't know where I got that. It's probably from one of the commentators. But I like the way that's worded because did you know that you're obeying something? If you're not obeying God, you're obeying something else. And notice how he words that. So the path that leads to wrath is ambition and disobedience to the truth and obedience to unrighteousness and doing evil. You're either going to be a, a slave to Jesus Christ or a slave to sin. And so we're obeying something. 
the Jews and the Gentiles are equally liable to judgment based on these two things. Either they are doing the works of righteousness or they are obeying unrighteousness. So they're both under the power of sin. In fact, uh, when Paul says in verses 9 and 10 in relation to, to both eternal life and eternal wrath to the Jew first and also the Greek, um, that's, that's really what he's saying. They're both under the power of sin. They're both uh, in the same situation as far as this final judgment goes. So there's not an advantage then uh, that can be had that you can say, well, I'm a Jew, so therefore I don't have to face the judgment. So the point of all these verses is that Jew, the Jews as well as the Gentiles are liable to judgment because that judgment will be according to the life we have lived and the righteousness of it, not according to whether we are Jews or Gentiles. Now, I hope at this point, so far in the message, that that's really kind of weighing on you a little bit. If you're thinking about a future judgment that's going to be based on your righteousness and you are honest with yourself... How do you feel walking into that judgment? How do you feel walking into that judgment? I know I wouldn't feel very good. If it's a judgment based on how I've lived my life and the standard is holiness and this judgment is going to be based on righteousness and unrighteousness and the deeds that I've done according to righteousness and according to unrighteousness, I don't know about you, I wouldn't feel real good walking into that judgment. If that's the end of the story, then we are of all men most miserable. It's not the end of the story. Thank goodness. Now, point number four, because this is going to raise a question. When he says in verse six, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And then verse 11, for there is no respect of persons with God. That raises a question probably in your mind. Does this mean that we are justified according to works? So if I'm going to be judged according to what I have done, then... How does that work? Because I know that I'm a sinner. So all men then are just, we're all spent. We're, we're, in, we're in trouble. So how, does that, how can that be possible when we understand the gospel that Paul had said uh, back in chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And he uses the same phrase to the Jew first, also to the Greek for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is, it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we, we hear about justification by faith and about a gospel that the righteousness of God can be accessed through faith. But then we come over to chapter 2 and he says, God's going to render to every man according to his deeds. So how do we square that circle? Um, and what's the point of these verses to describe is it to describe some hypothetical way to heaven along a path of obedience that no one can really walk and therefore everyone needs the gospel? In other words, is Paul wasting his time here and just saying, well, you know, if you were able to live a perfectly righteous life, then you're going to have peace and all these things, but if not, then you're condemned. Is that, is that what Paul is doing? I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think we should take the verses at face value so that they mean what they say and they mean that the path... Uh, to heaven and to be saved is a path of obedience and judgment uh, will really be according to works so then you say this would it be a contradiction with the gospel then of free and sovereign grace if 
that gospel and that experience of grace in our life and that faith that is implanted in us that we then exercise was strong enough to actually change our life and so that we see fruit and obedience in the life of the believer. If that were true, and I think it is true, then the works that, that really matter would be the works of faith at the judgment, and they would be the evidence of saving faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore our salvation would accord with them but not be based on them. I think that's actual, absolutely the truth of this passage. Now let me read you what John Gill said about it. He said, The manner in which these things are sought is by patient continuance in well-doing, by doing good works, and by doing these good works well from a principle of faith and love and with a view to the glory of God and by patiently enduring reproaches and sufferings for well-doing and by persevering therein. That's the words of John Gill. So when we say according to works, how does receiving eternal life or eternal wrath according to works fit with receiving eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ? Um, that's, I believe, the answer. But now first, let's make one thing just crystal clear before we go any further because I don't want to be, um, I don't want you walking away thinking that I'm saying something that I'm not. So this is absolutely not in question at all. Um, what we are not questioning at all is that we are eternally saved, eternally secured, not on the basis of what we do. I do not believe in salvation by works in any stretch of the imagination, and that's not what this passage is teaching, is a salvation by works. Um, we believe 100% that uh, faith unites us to Christ, and it is through that faith, because we are united with Christ, uh, that's the foundation of our justification is the righteousness of Christ, not anything that we do in and of our own. And Paul's going to really unpack that justification by faith in chapters 4 and 5 and in chapter 8. So we're going to get to that and unpack that in more detail. But um, we just need to make it very clear that we're not, we're not saying that we believe in uh, any kind of a salvation by works. So then we need to look and say, well, what, what does it say? What does it mean? Let's unpack it a little bit more. So let's, let's try it another way. To those who, are, who by perseverance in doing good, in seeking for glory and honor and immortality, God gives them, it says in verse 7, eternal life. So what does that mean? Well, one person might look at that passage and say it means that God would give eternal life on the basis of perfect obedience if anybody had it, but nobody does. So the point of the verse is simply to stress the hopelessness of man without the gospel. Okay, so that, that some people would look at that passage, and that's how they're going to interpret it. Another way to look at it would be this. It would be to say that it means that God does indeed give eternal life to those who persevere in obedience, not because the obedience is perfect or because it's the, it's the basis or the merit of eternal life, but because saving faith always changes our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit so that believers do persevere in doing good. Now, does that make sense? <laughs> I hope it does. So what he's saying here is not these people that I'm talking about that I'm going to give eternal life were perfect. They didn't make any mistakes. That's not even what the text says, right? That's not what the text says. Go back to the text. He says, who by patient continuance in well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality. 
Now, in other translation, it uses the word perseverance, which I, I like. I think that's easy for us to understand. But the concept is there in both translations. A changed life of obedience to God's truth. In other words, when you are born again and converted to the truth, there's going to be an obedience that follows that, that at the judgment, God's going to be able to say, there's the evidence. There's the evidence that my son's righteousness is placed on them and that, that their sin was placed on Christ. Therefore, there is no judgment because we have the righteousness of Christ. So all that the works are that, the, that you see, all this perseverance is, is the evidence of what is really true, authentic faith, which then unites us to Christ, which is the basis of our eternal life. Now, that's very complicated, and I completely understand that. So we're going we're gonna to try to come back to this even in our next message a little bit so that we understand it. But let me go over that one more time. So it's not the basis of eternal life itself, but it is the evidence of authentic faith, and that faith unites us to Christ, which is the basis of our righteousness and eternal life. So now, now that you see, even when we're talking here in Romans chapter 2 about the final judgment, now you know why it was so important for us to go back and how much time we spent in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Because in Romans 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also the Greek. So it, the gospel is not a respecter of persons there. The gospel is true. And then he says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So in the final judgment, you are going to have to have a perfect righteousness. But the truth is, it won't be your righteousness. <laughs> It'll be the righteousness of Christ. So your sin and your good works, even, are not enough. Even that patient continuance is not enough in and of itself, but that is evidence that you possess a righteousness which God can look at and say, my son died for this person, his righteousness, he sees us through the righteousness of Christ, not through our own sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ on us, and our sin was placed on Christ, so that then we are able then to have eternal life, which is what he says he gives to those there in verse 7. So I think that's the correct way to look at the passage. Eternal life is always based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ through our faith. That, that is how we must always see uh, eternal life and, and salvation is through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, there will be deeds that, that, uh, that we uh, perform that are um, along those lines that, that show this saving faith. There will be evidence in our life of that work, of that imputed righteousness through the Holy Spirit. And that we can't even claim credit for that, right? <laughs> because that's the Holy Spirit working in us. God had to completely make us a new creature for that to be possible. Without that, it would not be possible. So, so these are not earned deeds. Um, now there's a, a clue, really, if you go back to kind of just to enforce this a little bit, let's go to um, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the end of verse 4, going into verse 5, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing, and this is important, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's a, that's a key phrase. Not knowing that the 
kindness of God, that the goodness of God, that the long-suffering and forbearance of God lead us to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. So notice the importance of repentance. It's because they have unrepentant hearts that they're storing up wrath in the judgment. If they had repentant hearts, they would not store up wrath at the judgment. So what this is proven, and, and you say, well, what does this mean? How does this prove what you were saying about the other text? He's not talking about a perfection, a sinless perfection. He says these people were repentant. What does that mean? That means that they sinned, and then they repented. And that repentance in itself shows, that is a, that is a proof, that is a tell that they are of Christ because they had a repentant heart. So it's not that they didn't sin at all. It's that they had a repentance um, and, and very plainly says that. But after the hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So nowhere in this text does it say that eternal life is earned or merited or based on works or good deeds. It simply says in effect that the final verdict of eternal life there will be evidence in the life of those who are judged uh, in the positive to eternal life that there will be good deeds. There will be evidence there. Those two things will go together. And the reason they go together is that works um, uh, are through faith in Christ. Those works are done through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel of justification by faith is the power of God unto Salvation. The gospel does not come into a life and leave it under the dominion of sin. I don't believe that. Um, there are people, and I'm just going to be plain spoken this morning, there are people in our very order in the Prayer of the Baptist that do believe that, that the Holy Spirit comes in and, and gives you new life and that you remain under the dominion of sin and unbelief for the remainder of your life. I don't believe that that's true at all. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. So, uh, so the gospel... Um, and, and the Holy Spirit working through, and we know how all that works. I'm not going to go take a rabbit trail on that. But in regeneration, the Spirit gives life. And then in conversion, the gospel and the truth of who God is and the, the person and work of Jesus Christ comes in and it changes you. The gospel does not come into a life and then leave it under the dominion of sin. It comes in the power of the Holy Spirit and where it is believed and trusted it produces what Paul calls back in, in the very beginning of this book, the obedience of faith. So there will be obedience in the life of the faithful, those who believe. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the evidence of that is that there will be obedience in your life. Now, once again, the, the, the thing that, that we get thrown at a lot, those of us who do believe in perseverance, is will you believe in some kind of sinless perfection? Not at all, not at all. But there is evidence, there is obedience, there is some measure of faith and obedience in the life of the believer. Now it's pretty heavy, so I'm, I'm really kind of making a decision here. We're just going to stop there for today, and we'll come back, and I'm going to tie it back in with what we do in the, in the next section. But before we close, the implication of all this is, is really plain. Number one, we should have a healthy respect and understanding of the fact that there's going to be a final judgment. Uh, if you love Jesus Christ, then you should be striving in your life to do as little as possible as that makes him unhappy. And when you think about the judgment and you think about everything that you've ever said, thought, done, anything like that being opened 
That's a, that is a sobering thought, and it should be, and we should not quickly go past that and just say, well, because I understand the gospel, I'm not going to think about that. It's good to think about it. Uh, the Bible teaches us that. So we ought to tremble, really, at the concept of and, and just the, the great weight of what is coming in a final judgment, and yet we should trust Christ that he's going to bring us to the Father. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That when we face the final judgment, there are going to be those who are going to have to face that final judgment alone. And it's going to be based on them and them only. And if you face the final judgment and it's based on you and you have to approach into the Father on your own merit, with your own answers, and, and answering to the judgment on your own, then you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. And, and it's not going to end well for you. But the beauty of the gospel is, is that we don't have to approach to God by ourselves. That because Jesus Christ, because God in eternity past, there's not even really a real term, but it's the way we understand it, that he chose a people. And that when he chose those people, he gave them to Christ. They were given to him. Like we said in, in John chapter 6 in the, in the message that I preached up at camp. We were given to him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. It is the will of the Father that I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. You know what that last day is talking about? What is the last day talking about? It's talking about exactly what we're talking about this morning. Jesus Christ is, is going to be with you in that day if you're one of his. And so because the Father chose, he gave them to the Son, and the Son redeemed them. He took your sin and nailed it to his cross and he placed his righteousness on you so that in the final judgment, when you approach to God, God sees you through Jesus Christ. You've got the best lawyer that there's ever been because not only is he going to make a case for you, he is the case for you. It is his righteousness that will be um, exalted in that day. It's not going to be that you made it. It's not going to be that your works were good enough. A lot of people look at the final judgment and they see a scale. Well, that, that's a really false way to look at it. But if it is, you're in, you're in, once again, you're in big trouble because that scale would be a, a funny scale because all it would take is one sin to tip the scale, right? You could have tons of good works, one sin, that scale is going to be unbalanced, right? But that's not the case if Jesus Christ is your advocate. So we trust Christ to bring us to the Father and we know that, that goes back, um, I'm going to go back and read it one more time. In Romans, in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is, uh, is, is important. It's a big deal. And, and at the end of verse 16, when he says to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, this is really the, the point of the gospel. It's about belief in Jesus Christ and trusting in him for your righteousness and not trying to have it in, in your own way or, or do it on your own. But we trust Christ. We trust in him that he has paid the price for our sins and given us his righteousness so that we can face uh, this final judgment with confidence, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
who has purchased our salvation for us. I hope those things have been a blessing to you. I know that's a kind of a heavy topic, and I'll just say hang on. We're going we're gonna to continue to unpack this as we go through the rest of uh, Romans chapter 2.